Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Monday, the 11th of April, 2022. This is Holy Week. If you have not done so already, please join us in reading the Bible together during this Holy Week. You can find resources at MyFaithRadio.com. We're definitely going to be reading those passages during um, during the program today and talking about what it looks like to walk with Jesus during Holy Week. You know, walking with Jesus into Jerusalem yesterday, he was riding on a donkey. He was hailed as Hosanna. Um, people were acknowledging his arrival. They were hailing him as um, son of David, waving palm branches. Yeah, that, that story changes over the course of the week. And the events um, of today and the following days that take place in and around Jerusalem literally pave the way to the cross. And so when it invites you to be walking with Jesus and walking with us here at Faith Radio as we walk with Jesus during this Holy Week. Again, lots of resources in our Reading the Bible Together um, at MyFaithRadio.com. So let me just say this. Um, during this Holy Week, as we approach the news of the day, we are going to have the cross always in view. So as you consider the events of the day, no matter what they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we approach the news of the day, let us do so with the cross of Jesus always in view. So you're going to hear today that um, several EU countries and the EU itself has reopened its embassy in Kiev, a sign of solidarity. The Prime Minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson, you're going to see pictures of him walking courageously and in friendship, strolling the streets of Kiev with President um, of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, who, let's just keep in mind, Russia is trying to kill. And so, um, you know, some are calling it a photo op. I can tell you this. If you are um, Vladimir Zelensky, you don't care if it looks like a photo op to everybody else. You know, a guy got off a plane um, from the safety of Great Britain and walked with you in the desperate streets of your city, of your nation's capital, under um, under threat, uh, in the midst of war. Showing up matters. And so, um, I know, hats off to Boris Johnson, um, because showing up matters. It's incarnational to show up when a person is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so um, just want to lift that up this morning. Um, Britain is sending 120 armored vehicles and some new anti-ship missiles to Ukraine. The hope is that um, those anti-ship missiles in particular will help deter Russia's attempt at a marine landing in the city of Odessa. Um, the war is raging on. Um, you're going to see lots of satellite images of Russia's um, reinforcements that they are sending as they intend to assault the Donbass region of Ukraine. 
Um, so there are going to be lots of Ukraine headlines today and this week. And again, we're going to view it all. We're going to view it all in view of the cross of Jesus Christ. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're going to spend some time this morning talking with Pastor, Pastor Jason Meyer about how we pray in these days and practicing lament. excited on this Monday of Holy Week to have with us Pastor Jason Meyer. He's the lead pastor at the Urban Refuge in Minneapolis. Jason, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be here. So I'm remembering uh, a couple of years ago, we had several conversations surrounding the topic of lament. Your book, Don't Lose Heart, was a part of that. But you've been thinking more and more about the topic of lament and this underdeveloped spiritual muscle. Can you sort of reintroduce us to the lament terrain? Sure. Yeah, I think to use the analogy of a gym, there's a lot of kind of exercises that people really like because they can show off kind of the larger muscles like bench press or squats. And very often people don't really do hamstring curls or things like that. That machine isn't used as much because you can't lift as much weight. It doesn't look as impressive. And I think lament is kind of the hamstring curls of the Bible where it's just an underdeveloped muscle, and we don't realize how essential lament is for faith, for spiritual honesty, for love. We don't see how frequent it is. If we compare our reading of Scripture to our practice of lament, what we find is it's a whole book, of course, like Lamentations, but large stretches in Job, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the prophets, a third of the Psalms are lament. And so if we compare those two things, we'll see uh, we practice lament uh, a lot less than the Bible does. And I think that's to our detriment and our spiritual poverty. So when you talk about lament as a practice or you talk about lament as an exercise, it sounds like lament is something that people do. So what... What is the doing of lament? Yeah, so lament has two essential components. It has expression and it has direction. Expression, it is an expression of grief or sorrow. And so I think a lot of people, when they look at lament, they they don't want to practice it because it feels somehow like I'm griping, like I'm complaining, like maybe this feels disrespectful just because of the content it's, it's an expression of grief or sorrow. And yet the direction is also really what defines lament because it's taking that grief or sorrow and having a place to go with it. You go to God with it. One person said, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. What we find is in the Bible, we take our sorrow and our pain and we don't dismiss it. We don't Pollyanna it. We don't have some kind of trite spirituality that says everything's fine. What we do is we're spiritually honest with it. We have this robust sense of spiritual and emotional honesty, and we bring it to God. It's the opposite of cynicism. Cynicism says, why cry out? Nobody will answer. Nobody will hear. Lament is a faith-filled cry 
that says, I will cry out in my pain to the only one who hears, to the only one who cares, to the only one who could possibly do something about it. And what we don't realize is uh, there are many examples in everyday life. I think children are professional lamenters. What they Mm. do is they, they go to their parents and they take some promise that they heard and they bring it to them personally and they say, Mom, you promised to take me to the pool today. And we're not there yet. What's going on? You promised. I want you to keep your word. So children instinctively know where to go with their disappointment, where to go with their discouragement. And Christians having this relationship with our Father, through Christ, we know where to go with our pain and our discouragement. And that's why so much of the Bible is lament, because it's essential for spiritual honesty, it's essential for love, and it's essential for faith. We're talking with Pastor Jason Meyer. He's the lead pastor of the Urban Refuge. We're talking about lament, and we're talking about the practice of lament. Jason, let's let's apply this conversation to the week we now find ourselves in. This is Holy Week. We are walking with Jesus during this week. We know how this week ends And then we also know how next week begins, and we would love to leap from Palm Sunday to Easter, but we're going to be obedient and walk with Jesus during the the very real sorrow um, that is this Holy Week. Can you just talk about lament in the context of Holy Week? Yeah, I think people read the Holy Week account, and they don't really know what to do with how much Jesus suffered. They don't know how to feel. Mm. How should I feel about this when I'm reading it? Should I feel really sad? Should I feel glad that he did this for me? And what lament does is it it helps you understand not only did Jesus suffer for our salvation as we believe in him for salvation, he suffered so that we could trust him in our suffering. In other words, as we watch Holy Week unfold, we realize that Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world and the darkness could not overcome him. So here he is. If you love anything in this world, your heart will be broken. Because what happens is you see people who are, who are hurting, who are suffering. Jesus saw us eternally separated from God. And Jesus, the light, was willing to go into the darkness and take it all on. Every last ounce of suffering and shame and rejection, as you read the gospel narrative, you see just this climax of rejection that the Lord of glory would be known as the man of sorrows. It's just so staggering and disorienting. So you see Jesus having his disciples desert him despite their bravado. You see Peter denying him. You see the, the Jewish leaders uh, rejecting him, scorning him punching him, prophesy who hit you. You see the Roman soldiers mocking him, Pilate in a spineless perversion of justice, uh, sending him off to be scourged. You see the Roman soldiers mocking him. You see even at the cross, you see the passers-by hurling their insults at him. You see the Jewish leaders mocking and taunting. He saved others. He can't save himself. You see even those crucified on his right and on his left joining the mockery. And then in that climactic moment of rejection, you hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a question. 
And it's a question from Psalm 22 that begs to be answered. Why would the sinless one who deserves all worship and all glory and no rejection, why would he be forsaken by his father? And the answer is that he was forsaken so that we could be accepted. He died so that we could live. And therefore, in the lament, what is especially powerful and poignant about it is all the suffering that we see is for us. We see Mm. that he took it on. Like love immediately takes on what is uh, deserving for us and says, I will take all of this because I love you to save you. I will not let anything get in the way. I love Hebrews 12 saying, yes, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, but it says he despised the shame. So as all the Mm. shame is being heaped on him, what Jesus is saying is, I shame you, shame. You will not keep me from accomplishing my purpose. You will not keep me from redeeming my bride. You will not keep me from bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So what we're supposed to do as we read those accounts is to sit, see the suffering and realize it was for us. He did it all for us. There's a brokenness that we feel through the cross that says, Jesus did all of this for us. How great was our sin. How great is his love. And then the next step is to say, therefore, I can trust him with my suffering. I can trust him in my lament when we instinctively tend to follow Jesus and bring our assumptions and expectations and say, I thought that following Jesus meant my marriage would look different. My job would look different. My children would look different. I thought by now that my life would look different. And in these moments, what we do is the suffering of Jesus answers one of the key questions of our faith. Can we trust God in our suffering? Mm. Does God just know about it? Do we just trust God's sovereignty, the, the sovereignty of God, that He's we can trust him, he's working it all out? No, we can trust the sovereignty of God because we can trust the suffering of God. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like. And so he can empathize, sympathize with us in our weakness. We know he can be trusted because he doesn't know about it theoretically. He knows about it by experience. Hebrews says Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. We, We can trust him and come to him because we know he knows. We're talking with Pastor Jason Meyer. We're talking about um, not only the sufficiency of Christ in this week, but we're talking about the reality of his suffering and how we practice lament in the midst of this Holy Week. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio, and we'll be right back. Picking up again um, in our conversation with Pastor Jason Meyer on uh, the events of Holy Week and the practice of lament in the midst of it. Jason, you said so many just really profound and incredible things in, in our conversation to this point. I think that the relationship of Jesus's suffering to our own lament in the context of cultural realities, relational disappointments, physical pain, the suffering that people genuinely endure in in the context of life as Christians. Talk a little bit about that, because 
there's some sense that, you know, Christians shouldn't be suffering. Like, right, we should, you know, we're we're children of the king and um, disciples of the one who has overcome. So why are we experiencing so much suffering? And yet in the midst of that, I think lament is a powerful practice for us as Christians today. Right. I, I think it's essential to hear Jesus say, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they persecute you, malign you? So maybe um, the most surprising thing about Christians is that we're surprised by suffering. When Jesus said, expect it, he promised it. Mm. It's going to happen. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. That was Paul's encouraging words to the the saints on his second missionary journey as he went back around and encouraged Christians and said, through many trials and tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. So uh, the the truth of our sanctification that sometimes uh, slips by us is that God makes us like Jesus the same way he made Jesus like Jesus. Through his own suffering, he learned obedience. Through our suffering, we also learn obedience. And in in lament, I think here's what happens. If you love anything, your heart is going to be broken, and then you have a choice. Am I going to just be plastic? Am I going to be trite? Am I going to be fake? Or am I going to acknowledge this really hurts? And then when it hurts, the temptation is for your heart to shut down, for your heart to be put into a safe. And as C.S. Lewis says, what happens there when you put your heart in a safe, it actually becomes a casket. It's, it's breathless. There's no oxygen. It begins to not only change, it becomes changeless. It becomes unbreakable, unbreakable, unfeeling. And therefore, your, your heart begins to die. And what lament does is it keeps your heart and your faith alive. It keeps it feeling. It keeps honesty to say this really hurts and yet I'm not going to shut down. But that's where the resurrection comes in. Because lament says, yes, I'm going to bring God my broken heart, but I'm also going to believe he's not done. Because after everything that Jesus suffered, after all of the darkness that he went through in that grave, God wasn't done. He rose again from the dead. He is reigning on high. He's promised to return. We know that we can bring God everything that breaks our heart because we know he sees what we see, but he also sees more than we see. He sees Mm -hmm. what he's going to do, and we believe in lament. I can bring this to you because I believe you're not done. Jason, that's so um, important, profound, and powerful. As we walk through the events of Holy Week, we're going to acknowledge and recognize the suffering of Jesus every step along the way um, in many of the stories and twists and turns of the week, and then profoundly on um, on Thursday and Friday. Um, and then on Saturday, we're going to sit in silent darkness. Um, I feel like Saturday of Holy Week is a really good, like, lament emphasis day. Um, you think we could recover the Saturday of Holy Week as a day specifically dedicated to lament? I think not only can we, I think we must. Because there's, like in Psalm 73, what you have is 
one of the saints coming to the Lord and saying, I was tempted to believe this. I was tempted to believe that the, the, the wicked prosper. And it doesn't make any difference then if you're righteous or not, because I see them prospering. I see them sleek. I see them having all that they want. And I, I'm tempted to believe that holiness doesn't matter. I'm tempted to believe that following God doesn't matter, makes no difference. And then he confesses, but but you have shown me who you are. And whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And what people sometimes miss, I think in the Psalms, is that we, we want to rush to the end of the Psalm where it says, you delivered me, and I'm going to praise you forever, and your, your righteousness is like a mighty mountain, and your, your mercy extends to the heavens. We want to get to that place of praise, but we can't short-circuit and fast-forward through all of the lament, all of the complaining, all of the honesty about what's hard and what hurts. We have to go through the process in order to get to that place of praise, and Saturday, we have to have that time where we sit in darkness in order to fully understand and participate in the praise of the resurrection. That's Pastor Jason Meyer. You can find him at the Urban Refuge, urbanrefugechurch.org. Jason, as always, thank you so much for speaking into our lives and sharing this time with us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Overwhelming, reckless love of God. That's what this week is all about. Um, it is Holy Week. We are walking with Jesus. I hope you are reading through the Bible with us during this Holy Week. If not, um, please do so. Go to myfaithradio.com. There's a there's a reading guide. There's a prayer guide. There's a podcast. Again, reading the Bible together during this Holy Week at myfaithradio.com. This is also a great week, if you haven't already done so, to... Um, follow Faith Radio on social media, and that way you won't miss anything. So you can follow Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram. You get scripture and uh, really wonderful graphics for you to then turn and share with others. It's also a place where you can connect with our live stream events. So you just search Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram. I'm also uh, on Twitter, so is Faith Radio. You can follow me. Uh, I'm at Carmen LaBerge. All right, so as you consider walking as a Christian in the context of the American culture today, um, you may wonder from time to time, how, how do non-Christians in the culture view, my, um, view me and view my convictions? And when I present those convictions in public spaces or at work, you know, how do my fellow Americans feel about that? How are they responding to all of that? Those are some of the things that Daniel Bennett actually researches at John Brown University, and he's going to join us next. One of the things we're going to talk about is what research shows um, about our neighbors' attitudes towards us as religious people when we express our um, beliefs under our constitutional rights, 
um, especially when we feel like those rights are being violated in certain situations. So, uh, you know, what does it mean to use a religious objection? And then how do my neighbors feel about both the objection and me, the objector? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, if you were to Google Daniel Bennett, you might come up with a football player. You might come up with a saxophonist. I have come up with Dr. Daniel Bennett, the political science department chair at John Brown University. Uh, He is also the assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing and one of my favorite people to talk about, talk with about sort of the intersection of faith and politics in the United States of America. So my favorite Daniel Bennett, welcome back. Thank you very much. I've I've been keeping track of the saxophonist for quite some time. <laughs> right? I mean, he looks pretty good. I don't think so. Yeah. Not yeah. not a bad person to share a name with. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, um I I have a number of things that I would love to discuss with you today. Can we start with the religious objectors um and the religious objections that a religious objector might have in the culture to certain things and then how my neighbors feel about me if i use a religious objection um you know to a certain let's say rule or regulation at work yeah so you know i think as as christians become more especially you know confessing orthodox christians whatever we want to call them uh become more and more of a cultural minority the need to claim exemptions from otherwise generally applicable rules or laws is going to become more and more, I think, necessary. I think the key is to be really wise and discerning on when we make those claims now uh, so that when we do need to make them in the future, it's it's not as if it's become rote or routine for the culture to say, oh, it's just these Christians trying to get out of doing certain things. Um, this isn't to say that they're going to understand why we're claiming these things, uh, but we should be really diligent and discerning about when we claim them now. I think the other really important thing is that we respect and absolutely support unequivocally uh, the, the rights of others uh, in, in claiming their own religious exemptions uh, for, from rules and regulations. So in your own research, you know, sort of where does this where does this come up and um, and, and what do you feel like, you know, um, about sort of how I mean, here's a here's a te- here's a text this morning from a listener. Right. So, you know, I'm in a Bible study group and um, one person says that she's really hurt when people around her refer to her, let's say, as a Bible thumper. Now, that's a pretty minimal, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a minimal criticism in my view. However, you know, depending on how sensitive you are to the criticism of others, um, those are the kinds of things I think that Christians are increasingly hearing. You know, people are rolling their eyes. People are uh, setting our concerns aside. Um, is that, you know, in terms of like the, the, the percentages of Americans that feel hostile in some way toward Christians because of the things that maybe Christians would use a religious exemption or a religious ob- objection to in the culture? Like, is is it rising? Is it falling? What is your sense as a researcher? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think that since uh, 2015 uh, with the Bergefell v. Hodges and the increase in 
And again, it's not a wide increase, but certainly anecdotally and in terms of media coverage, an increase in people seeking, I think, in in large part, well-intentioned and well-founded exemptions from you know, participating in same-sex wedding ceremonies, baking cakes, taking pictures, organizing flowers. Uh, as those things become more and more uh, prominent in the culture and the media covers them as either uh, an aberration <laughs> or a deviation from what should be considered the norm, I think Christians really do have to be prepared to deal with that uh, accusation as, you know, we are just so out of the mainstream here. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we are, uh, may, maybe be described as backwards or not, uh, not consistent with the co- prevailing cultural norms. And I understand the, the sensitivity. Uh, I understand that, uh, particularly when for so, you know, my, my, my mom grew up in an era that was very different than the era in which I'm raising my kids. Um, but mm-hmm. the, at the end of the day, the sensitivity doesn't matter as much. I'm sorry. I mean, this is a, I mean, we were told that the world's going to hate us. Um, and, and I think for for the first time in, in many Christians lives in the U.S., we're starting to actually see that even in minimal ways when we compare it to what's happening in the rest of the world. OK, so let's talk a little bit about the rest of the world. Um, you um, you are responsible for the model U.N., um, at JBU. And so I thought, yeah. who better to ask this question of um, than Daniel Bennett? So when we talk <laughs> about war crimes and we talk about the possibility um, of anyone in, from Russia um, actually facing some sort of war crimes, you know, tribunal of some sort, um, does the UN have some kind of role in that? And if so, how, how would that ever happen since Russia is yeah. uh, a permanent member? Right. So, I mean, theoretically, the U.N. could condemn Russia. They could uh, they could, I guess, support the idea that uh, Russian military leaders or even the president of Russia, you know, should go before the Hague for uh, war crimes, charges and trials. Of course, you hit the nail on the head, though, that uh, in order for those resolutions to pass and for these things to happen, not only would Russia as a permanent member of the Security Council have to sign off on these things, which is not going to happen, uh, but then you'd have to have the Russian military and the president essentially voluntarily bring themselves to the Hague. Now, what the only, re- the only way in which we're going to see these things transpire is if there is leadership regime change in Russia and you effectively have the Russian government deciding, yeah, we're going to participate in this and send our folks off. This is similar to what we saw in the Balkans in the late 90s, early 2000s with the former president, Slobodan Milosevic, who was accused and convicted of war crimes. It was after that government, essentially, it wasn't his government anymore. And 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 they were able to basically put him in that position. Um, but this is one of the main challenges of international institutions. They're great vehicles for fostering international cooperation, for free trade, uh, to decrease the likelihood of global war in, that we saw in the 20th century. But the but the crux of these international organizations is cooperation. And when push comes to shove participating countries are really unwilling to set aside that fundamental sovereignty that comes with deciding uh, who, you know, who's going to lead us and who we are going to surrender to this international process. When you think about um, the United Nations and functionally what the UN is able to 
influence or accomplish around the world, what maybe are the one, uh, one or two or three top things that you feel like the UN is focused on and is rightly focused on? So I think globally, uh, the UN is really good about shining a light on human rights abuses, particularly, and this is kind of a dispiriting thought, particularly in countries that don't have a lot of international uh, clout. So smaller countries uh, where uh, they don't really have the ability to hamper or block up any resolutions or investigations. And I think they could, you know, ideally shine a light in those situations and mobilize global action. Uh, I do think that some of their maybe less controversial uh, missions, whether it's promoting access to clean drinking water, uh, promoting uh, economic development, uh, they're pretty successful about mobilizing the world in those ways. But on the biggest questions of the day, uh, and this is where some of my students kind of push back against the utility of the UN, the UN really is beholden to the member states themselves. And that becomes a problem when there are countries like China, like Russia, that are sitting on the Security Council. And by the way, those countries would point to the US as well and say, well, goodness, I mean, it's not like the US has been entirely innocent on the international stage since the founding of the UN. And that's part of the problem is there's always finger pointing among these permanent Security Council members saying, why are you looking at us when you have your own dirty laundry? So that's the big criticism of the UN. When it comes to smaller things, though, I do think there's an avenue for international cooperation that works. So the buy, I mean, the the bias toward our own uh, way of seeing things and our own way of doing things is always, I think, that just uh, amplified when we start talking about things at the United Nations because nobody wants their own dirty laundry hung out there, but. But it does seem at the U.N. like everybody is absolutely willing to point to everyone else's dirty laundry. It's an interesting it's definitely an interesting environment. Well, I think you can also say really quick, uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the U.S. hasn't signed on to the International Criminal Court. Uh, And this is kind of surprising for some folks. But as soon as the United States agrees to those terms, there's a concern that uh, they're going to call ex-presidents and ex-secretaries of state before the International Criminal Court for human rights abuses. I mean, basically any president that has engaged in drone strikes where civilians have been killed could be targeted and maybe even legitimately so for human rights abuses. So <laughs> there, there is a tension there that I don't think the U.S. has totally reckoned with. Yeah, I, it, totally. One hundred percent. All right. So thank you. That is very, very helpful. Um, We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, Dr. Daniel Bennett and I are going to talk about why he's taking a break from Twitter and also a conversation about salaries in higher education. Did you know that there's like people with PhDs working for free? Yeah, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. He also uh, posts an uneasy citizenship blog on Substack. Um, All right. So you're taking a break from Twitter, I noted. So um, I'll ask why and then I'll ask how. (sighs) Yeah. So uh, by the way, by the way, on the on the pan on the pancake front with the kids this morning, let me just say that you're back up to running out of syrup is grab a can of pie filling, open it up, heat it up, and put oh, it on yeah. there as a fruit compote, and just go with it. 
that's a great idea. You know, I think we need to keep some of those handy. That's a great idea. And that would work for me too on any given day. Honestly. Okay. okay. Back to Twitter. Yeah. That's thank you. So yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed and and frankly benefited from Twitter over the years, connected me with, with, uh, other folks in my discipline and kept me up to date on what's going on in the research front. It's one thing to read journals and, you know, go to conferences, but, you know, when, when political scientists share their research in real time, especially on timely questions, it can be really, really helpful as I teach and even as we do our own research. Um, of course, it's kept me up to date on the news. And, you know, I follow reporters who cover the courts and religion in American society. But, man, it can be a time suck. <laughs> it can be really uh, it can be really uh, it can be really hard to balance, honestly, after some time with you know, you kind of uh, you kind of develop a sort of addiction to it where you just kind mm-hmm. of default click and log on. And there is a temptation to you know try to get clicks, try to get followers, try to get retweets there. Are, you know, I'm sure neuroscientists have talked about that endorphin rush that comes when you see a tweet do well or whatever. So every once in a while, I, I try to take a break um, and it usually coincides with a busy time. Uh, in my life. So right now it's it's April, which is always the busiest semester of the year uh, at JBU. Um, we're getting ready to wrap up the semester. It's Easter, of course. My son's birthday was yesterday. So there's just a lot of stuff going on in April. Um, and so I try to take breaks around those times or when I have a big deadline coming up, um, whether it's book related, article related. Um, as for how, uh, part of it is taking stuff off my phone. So it just doesn't, doesn't exist on my phone mm-hmm. anymore. And there's, there's a great, uh, there's a great software you can get and it, it does cost, but it's pretty minimal. It's called freedom. And, uh, you can essentially block certain apps or websites at certain times of the day or throughout the entire day, if you really want to, and you can set up how long you want the block to go for. I learned about this from Samuel James, who's a, he's an editor at Crossway and, and he, he's writing a book of his own on technology and Christianity, uh, really thoughtful writers one of my favorite writers. Um, but he introduced his app, at, uh, you know, to his readers. And for, I think he actually quit Twitter altogether for a lot of the same reasons that I was just talking about. So I'm not there yet. I, I still think there's value in it. Uh, but every once in a while, I find it helpful to step away. Yeah, I, I noted that you had and I thought I just need to find out more about that. Um, yeah. OK, so um, on um, on a completely different topic, as we range about this morning, um, I was not aware that there are some people who have earned PhDs who are then expected to work for free by academic <laughs> institutions. And then we wonder why they can't repay their student debt. Yeah. Are you talking What's about going the on UCLA? Here? Are you talking about the UCLA position that was advertised? I, I am. Yeah. So this was, a, if I remember correctly, in the chemistry department and the ad uh, stated that the person, you know, for qualifications needed an earned PhD to teach the class. And there was fine print that stated, you know, the applicants understand that there's no compensation for this. And of course, that got everybody up in arms. Um, I think UCLA later tried to hedge or tried to clarify and say, well, this was really just for this was written with a very specific person in mind who already works at the university. Uh, who, you know, maybe is a teaching assistant and so we can't pay anymore. Anyway, it didn't play well. Um, but yeah, the academic job market is really, really tough. I, I tell my students who are interested in going into academia to be, because I think there, there's, there's folks who were called to that. I certainly was. And, but I think the, the, the helpful point was to understand what the limits are, um, you know, how to go about it. So, if you're taking on debt to get a PhD, I think that's a real that's a real problem. Uh, most PhD programs 
will provide fellowships or assistantships or funding is the, you know, the inside baseball parlance um, to say, you know, we, you, it won't cost you anything. You're not going to make a lot of money when you're doing it, but you, it shouldn't really cost you anything if you're working for the university. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then we get into the whole issue of starting salaries. And I think there's this perception that academics are making, you know, six figures right out of the gate. And honestly, if you're working at a place like Harvard or Stanford or, you know, these elite institutions, and yeah, that's probably the case, but the vast majority of academics, and I'm putting myself in this category too, aren't teaching in those places. And that's not to say that we don't have a good situation, right? I love the work-life balance. I love the schedule. Um, but, you know, frankly, you could make more money doing a lot of other things. <laughs> and uh, right. you just have to be happy with that balance. Yeah, and you have to be happy with the love of learning and an opportunity to be uh, in an environment where, uh, you know, like you're yeah. rewarded for studying. And, yeah, I love that. Oh, goodness. Okay, and advising so we... students, too. Yeah, I mean, just to see the opportunities my students get when they graduate is just is, is really rewarding, frankly. It really kind of pr- provides that motivation. I love that. I love that. All right, so we have a couple of minutes left. Um, so you and I both uh, have read this piece Um, The thesis is that we don't need more moderates. We need more truth tellers. I'm wondering um, sort of how you would hear that in the culture today in terms of Christians um, making a public witness in particularly political discourse um, and whether or not you agree. Do we need do we need more truth tellers or do we need more moderates? Well, I think we need more truth tellers, uh, Frank, you know, frankly, I don't I, I guess a lot of it. And this is, you know, I'll d- default to this 90 percent of the time. It depends on what, how we're defining our terms here. Mm-hmm. If we're defining moderates as squishy or flexible on foundational issues, then no, we don't need more. We don't need more moderates. I think if uh, we're talking about moderates in terms of the way that we carry ourselves in the political space, in terms of how we engage with others with whom we might have disagreements, I think that's more valuable. Uh, this isn't to say that this, this isn't to say that we need more people to just smile and be nice to each other. Um, but I think, and this is part of the book that I'm writing posture in which Christians carry ourselves is really, really important to how the rest of the world perceives Christianity, perceives the truth of the gospel and, uh, you know, what that means for the future. As far as truth tellers go though, yeah, I don't think Christians should be slinking back from some of these culturally sensitive questions, right? Or hemming and hawing or hedging on certain things. I think Christians should be prepared to make those positive arguments, but we can do so in a way that frankly doesn't make us jerks to the rest of society. Mm-hmm. And, and there, is this, uh, there is this tendency, especially on social media, for certain elements of, of conservative Christianity to basically say, look, the Russell Moores of the world, the David Frenches of the world, they're just trying to be too nice. They're trying to get in with this elite opinion in the New York Times, the Atlantic, and these coastal areas. And what we need now are people to just take a stand. And I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a stand, but my goodness, we can take a stand in a way that doesn't make us jerks to, want, to each other, to be- other members of the body of Christ, and to those in the world. So I think we can be truth tellers, but I think we can also be moderates in terms of the political tenor of the day. I think those two things can go hand in hand. Speaking the truth, um, doing so out there in the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. That's uh, that's the way I like to frame it. And I think that um, I think you and I echo one another on that point. All right. um, Back to the pancake making in your home. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us this morning. That's Dr. Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. You can also find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog on Substack. 
You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Forgiven, forgiven. This is Monday of Holy Week. Today's the day that um, we look at the text where Jesus clears the temple. You can read it in all four Gospels. I'll read it from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are making it a den of robbers. Jesus actually cares how we worship, where we worship, and what we worship, when we worship. What does my life say about who I worship and how I worship him? What does my life say about my willingness to be a person of prayer? Where are the places and spaces where I have perverted some portion um, of the good news of the gospel or the practices of the faith? These are, these are days in which we examine ourselves as we walk with Jesus toward the cross, toward Calvary. So we are um, reading through the Bible during this Holy Week. We invite you to join us in doing so at MyFaithRadio.com. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.